0: bless us time instruct us with your word or change us by your spirit in Christ's name amen Thought it'd be appropriate to talk about the incarnation of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, the incarnation meaning, oh, there we are. The incarnation meaning uh, that Christ became a man. Um, so actually, I had a very interesting conversation this week when I was at school. Um, I got to talk. To, I've been, I have been talking to this guy. His name is Ben. He kind of had a Jewish sounding last name, so and it came up you know, that he went to Jewish school when he was a child, Until his bar mitzvah and gone, right? So as soon as he kind of checked the apartment box, he was out. And now he's in Arcata, he's doing the classic Arcata thing, which is kind of like this pseudo-Buddhism, uh, New Age-ish um, syncretism. And, and basically, like he's been trying to explain to me over the uh, past semester that, you know, he's trying to find the intersections of all religions, because all religions are basically the same thing, a little bit of credit, but somehow, you know, somehow they, you know, if you find where they all intersect, that's, that's the real truth. And so we actually talked um, about that for a little bit, but one of the things that I think kind of got to him at the end, like, I was, I was trying to think, like, the conversation is, you know, I, I asked him some probing questions, I think he kind of tripped up on, he's like, oh, that's a good point, no, that's a good point, about, you know, if you make a truth claim, if you say, no, this is true, then you're automatically being exclusive, like, if this is true, then that's wrong, and and he was kind of upset that the religious kept saying people were wrong, and then he made this truth claim. I said, well, aren't you just saying all the religions are wrong? He's like oh. like, oh, yeah. I guess I just did, didn't I? It's like, oh, okay, so we're making headway. Um, but what actually, I was, I was kind of praying as we were kind of, I was, I was helping him with math. And I was praying with, as we were sitting there, I was like, oh, man, is there any last thing to say? I'm about to, you know, this guy's about to take off the finals. I probably won't see him until next semester, if ever again. I was just wondering if there's anything else that I could ask him. And I kind of felt like I got this, like, oh, I've got an idea. And so when he he kind of came back, now, just to understand, he obviously doesn't think that God's a person. He thinks God's a concept or an energy. That's kind of very Buddhist of him. And and so I asked him, like, it's like, oh, hey, one more thing before you go. If God were a person, would that change the way you approach religion? And he just looked at me, oh, I think this hit. It's like, if God were a person, would this change the way you approach religion? And he's like, but I don't want God to be a person. Because <laughs> like, then I can't trust him. Like, because of all the problems in the world. i like, no, 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 no. That's not the question. is not a question about whether or not you'd be happy with the answer. It's a question of whether or not it's true. He goes, okay, that's right. Okay, that's true. And it's, if God were a person, would that change? Because what, what I was trying to get at with him, and, and he, asked, he asked if he can think about it, he'll come back to me next semester. So you can pray for him. His name's Ben. And, um, I, you know, hopefully we'll have a good follow-up as he kind of, he, he was really stumped and he was kind of staring at the floor a lot, so I think, I think we will have another conversation. The Lord keeps pricking his heart on this. Because the whole point is, if God is a person, then you're not going to approach him like science. He's not something that can be measured or quantified. Or that You can just, like, find, you know, that religions are all just different measurements of this, this idea of this concept of God. No, that if God is a person, you would approach him the way you'd approach any other person in one sense that you need that person to tell you about himself. So, what I was trying to get him to get at was that in order for you to know God, in order for you to answer these questions that you're obviously trying in your spiritual journey to answer, you really have to come to God and say, tell me who you are. Now, one of the things about if you ask God this, if God is a person and God tells you who he is, get ready to be baffled and surprised. Because God... He's different than us. He's way different from us. He's holy. He's got. He's infinite. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. All these things. He knows all things. He controls all things. And then there's other things about him that just kind of baffle our minds. Like God is a Trinity. Like there's one God, one God, but three persons. And people, you know, especially the uh, Islam, they kind of laugh at you. It's like what? You can't do math. One and three. It's like no, no, no. You know, there's. He's not one in the same way that he's three. He's one in shared essence, three in persons. And, and I mean, for the life of us, yes, this is confusing. Because he is completely above us and beyond us at times. So we should expect to be confounded by him. And so if the Trinity was hard, and I think it is, and we, we had a sermon on the Trinity a couple months back. Uh, I'm going to kind of rehash from that a little bit. But the incarnation kind of joins in tandem with being a complicated idea. That, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, it's really hard to wrap your mind around, trying to get around the mechanics, like, how does that work? I don't know. But we know it's true, because the Bible tells us it's true. God revealed it about himself. So, um, the sermon will kind of have its parts. The first thing is just a reminder of what it means to be God. God set the definition of, if you're going to be God, what does that mean? We're gonna, and that would be kind of a rehash from the Trinity Sermon. What does it mean to be God? And then show that Jesus Christ is God, that Jesus Christ is man, so Jesus Christ has two natures, and we'll look at a passage, and then why this is our hope. All right, so what does it mean to be God? Now, in, in Isaiah and in the prophets, God defends his deity. I am the true and living God, and these other pagan gods, they're not gods. Now, it's very instructive the way that he defends his deity and takes down the other gods. Because he says that I have attributes. I can do things that your little piece of wood cannot do. If you are a God, then you'll be able to do them. You'll have these qualities. And if you're missing any of them, if you cannot do any of this, then you are just, it's not that you're a lesser God, like a little g God. You're not God. If you're not the creator and sustainer of the universe, you're not God. If you're not eternal in your nature, coming from eternity past, never having a moment of creation, always in existence, always existing and always possessing life and never ending, unless you have that quality, you're not God. If you're not omniscient, knowing all things, possessing all wisdom, able to predict what's going to happen in the future, or able to remind you of what happened in the past flawlessly. If you do not have those qualities, you're not God. If you're not omnipotent. All-powerful. Never frustrated, thwarted in your plans. Then you're not God. If you're missing any of these attributes, you are not God. Isaiah 43. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, who I have chosen, that you may know and believe in me and understand that I am he, Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. God is saying exclusively, I am God. There is none before me. There is none that comes after me. I I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Which is kind of putting, uh, putting stakes to the claim. Because if the other gods are not gods, then why are you trusting them to save you? We have to know who the true God is. That is the only way to be saved. So God says, I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. any. Isaiah 46, verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? In verse 9, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken it. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. So, this is God. Now, in the New Testament, things start getting a little bit more complicated, just a little bit, because Jesus comes, and Jesus claims that he is God. And then he says, I have a Father in Heaven, who is also God. And then there's this Holy Spirit, who also gets the title of God. Three of them having this title of God, saying there's one God, yet we're seeing distinctly, at the same time, at the same moment, three persons. Now, when Christ's deity is defended. Guess how they do it? He des- he demonstrates that he has those attributes that only God could have. So when Christ steps into history, God starts revealing Himself in the coming of Jesus. A devout monotheistic Jew might say, "Hold on a minute. What do you mean that you're God?" But Jesus demonstrates that He is. Possesses these attributes. So listen, this comes from John chapter five verse nineteen. We're gonna we're gonna land on the passage in a minute. It'll be Philippians two, but just in, in summary, getting there. So Christ's testimony about himself in John five nineteen. So Jesus says to them. So he's having an argument with the Pharisees, the monotheistic Jews, who said, "Hold on a second, how can you claim to be God?" And Jesus says to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing." For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In greater works than these he will show him, so you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives him life, so also the son gives life to, all, to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly I say to you, an hour is coming, and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as a father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to also have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So, so as a father, so have I. I do the things that my father does. Now, and, and this, even this title, the son of God, I, I don't think we get it as Western Americans because um, I think I use the, the argument... So, if your, your father was a farmer, guess what you were going to be? A
1: farmer. Okay.
0: Um, our last name is Gil. We like to pretend like we come from a great clan of Irishmen. We're probably fishermen. Last <laughs> name Gil, right? And so there's like this pattern that, that what your father did, so you did likewise. And so, so Jesus says, I'm the son of God because I do what my father says. And, and then and it's really funny, he turns it on them, and, and they say, Well, we're the, we're the sons of Abraham, Jesus says because you're not doing the things that Abraham did. Abraham believed in me. Abraham, back thousands of years ago, believed in me. You're like your father, the devil, because you do what he does. Beyond this, Jesus proved that he was omniscient, that he could see things in the hearts of people that he had no business knowing or understanding. He was omnipotent. He was able to accomplish his will. He said, I will lay down my life. No one will take it from me. When I die, it's because it's my hour to die. He is eternal. He declares about himself that he existed before the creation of the world. He is the first. He is the last. He is sovereign. All creation listened to him. He tells the storm to stop. The storm stops. Jesus has life in himself. He's not dependent on someone to give him life. He he was granted to have life in himself, and he gives life. John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Colossians 2.9 summarizes this. and says that Christ is the whole fullness, complete, the whole fullness of deity that dwells bodily. All of deity is possessed by Christ. And then remember that passage, that God will not share his glory with another. I will not do it. Christ says in a prayer to the Father in John 17, Father, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. They share the glory together. So, Jesus argues. He is God. Now, because of the restraints of the sermon, we kind of stopped right there and then like kind of moved on to the Holy Spirit because I was trying to show each of uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit having the qualities of deity and therefore being God. That's why we believe in this thing called the Trinity. But what I did not get to is, I probably should have, is that objection that kind of came up from my wife, who's always so kind to tell me. like, oh, no, I didn't address this. Like, oh, you no, know not Because, there were times that Jesus doesn't act like he has omniscience or omnipotence or was eternal. So sometimes it's like he does, and sometimes he doesn't. Okay, So Jesus seems very much like a man. He reflects humanity. So, for example, Jesus speaks of not knowing something. Mark 13, 32. Concerning the day or the hour of the coming judgment, no one knows not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Luke testifies that as Jesus was growing up as a child, that he grew both in wisdom and in stature. So his mind, it grew in wisdom. There's things he didn't know when he learned them. And he grew in stature, like every boy does, right? He grows up really tall. Not to mention other, like, very mannish things, like Jesus was hungry, he was thirsty, He was weary. These are very not-God attributes, right? God is a spirit. God is in the heavens. He does not grow weary or faint. But here is Jesus having these qualities. So, what is it? Is Christ God, or is he not God? What is it? In fact, skeptics today, some of the two of the New York Times bestsellers right now, would tell you that, um, How Jesus Became God. That's the title, yeah. How Jesus Became God. Like, Jesus was a man, and his disciples were so impressed by him that they started, like, kind of hyping up the stories just a little bit. Now, fast forward 100 years, and then they started, like, just throwing on deity stories on top of of him as well. So, like, over this 100-year period, like, like, the mythology of Christ grew, and suddenly Christ is now this deity, this God. And... That was not what Jesus originally was. That's not what his disciples originally thought he was. And they try to make these fancy arguments um, based on, like, you know, we found this manuscript that says this or that. Okay. And, and so, I mean, this is out there. Pop culture. New York Times bestseller. There's books arguing this very thing that Jesus, no, 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 no. Jesus was a man. People want to make him a god. But in fact, like, I kind of wish they'd read the whole Bible. Just like read the whole thing. In fact, the Bible is very aware of this seeming contradiction. The Bible's not like, oh, oh you got me. Right? God's like, oh, yeah, I didn't think of that one. No. In fact, it, it, it defends this truth. So we're going to show from Scripture that Jesus Christ is both. Both fully God and fully man. Right? Now, of course, I mean, you, I, you can almost argue that you can look, you know, flip a page open in the Bible, in the New Testament especially, drop your, like, you know, choose any page, and somehow you could probably get there, right, just from statements made. The whole New Testament is based on this revelation of Jesus Christ. So it all kind of works together. Now, there, there, are, key, there are key passages that really help us. We're going to look at them. But just to make sure that I could show you that this is not just coming from the New Testament. There's some expectation in the Old Testament that Jesus was going to be both God and man, Um, And we read a lot of them over Advent. For example, Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a son is born. Unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God. The Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And there are others. We're going to refer to another one later. But, okay. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 in the New Testament, and there is this one passage I think really helps clarify that Christ is both fully God and fully man. And it'll be, the verses in question will be Philippians 2, verse 6 and 7, but we're going to kind of back up and get Philippians 2 in some context. So Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from Love any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests but to the interests of others. Okay, stop right there. So this church had some division problems. They're fighting. See that in the last chapter, tell these two ladies to stop fighting. But then, okay, this is not unique, to just this is one church, because guess what? It's common to all human nature that we all have selfish ambition and vain and conceit, and we do not put other people's needs before ourselves. So, we're told, let each of you, um, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, so, the solution to this problem is to look to Jesus Christ, who he is, The fact that you have this mind in him. If you are united to Christ, you will have this available to you. Verse 6. Who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this, we're going to argue from, Christ has both a divine and human nature. So starting in verse 6, it says, Who, though he... Existed in the form of God, or though He, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. First word, form. Was it mean that He was in the form of God? Okay. Was form mean? good? Form,
1: right? An
0: athlete would have good form. Okay, that's not it. Okay, that's not the one. But that's like that's the that's the main thing you think of when you think form, like or the outward shape, outward appearance, or outward quality of something. Okay, that's, that's you. Too much English, um, getting into it. It's, it's more in the original idea in the word formed is kind of like the whole, well-rounded, both inward and outward qualities of the thing, like the whole thing. So, a bit of historical context. I hate to do this to you, but it really helps if you get it. Plato, historical context. Plato um, and Aristotle, his protege. Okay. If you remember in high school, like remember the story of the cave, you know, shadows cast on the cave. So Plato had this thing. And the Greeks have this thing where you say, okay, what makes a chair a chair? What makes a bed a bed? Okay, because a bed can be made out of straw or wood or NASA foam, right? There's all these things that you can make of a bed. Okay, but what makes it inherently a bed? What are those qualities? And so if the qualities that make something something, like bed versus not bed, that is form. That's what they refer to it. Same word used here. He says, Jesus Christ had the form of God. So, whatever it meant to be God, like all the qualities that make you essentially God, Jesus had that form. He has what makes God, God. And Jesus Christ existed in this form before he came to earth. So, before he came to earth, he was in the form God. Which means that anybody tells you that Jesus Christ became God after coming to earth, like the Olsteins, unfortunately, I just read a clip. It said, Jesus became God when the Holy Spirit baptized him. No, Jesus existed beforehand as God. And it says that Jesus has a second word, equality with God. Okay. Now, I had always, you know, before I, I sat down I was working this passage I always thought, like, you know, he had equality with God. Yep, again, like, he's equal with God. Okay, but the equality being referred to here is not that they're equal in nature. He already did that. That was form. Equal in nature, that was form. This is equal in status. Jesus had, as God, all the rights and privileges therewith. He deserves all the glory, honor, and worship. He deserves all rule and dominion over every square inch of this earth, and over every second of our lives. Jesus is owed that as God. He deserves angels worshiping him 24-7, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Yet, because of our plight, Jesus did not see this equality with God as a prize that must not slip from his grasp. He humbled himself. He sought the needs of others before himself, and he came into our world. And that's the force of the whole, why Christ is our example of humility. That though he was owed all these things, yet he, he laid them aside, the privileges, the glory, the honor, and he came to earth. So rather than claiming the prerogatives of his position, he emptied himself. Okay. Now, this is where we get careful, because how did Christ empty himself? And it says he emptied himself by taking the form, the word again, of a servant. Further explained by being born in the likeness of men. So he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So this is interesting math. If you think the Trinity is an interesting math, like, Three persons, one God, right? Here's this. Christ emptied himself by addition. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. And it's not that Christ simply took on the external appearances of a slave, disguised himself, as it were, like a king kind of putting on rags and then, like, you know, pretending to be a slave. No. No. He, in every way, became a slave by his very form, by his very nature and character. Now, what is not being said here? And this this has been such a huge deal in all of church history. What is not being said here is that Christ relinquished or subtracted from his divine nature. He did not let go of omnipotence. He did not let go of Omniscience? Omniscience. He did not like he did not let them go. He just did not take upon himself <laughs> the prognosis of it. Okay, now we're gonna get into like, so, okay, explain again how you can be both omniscient and finitely confined in your knowledge. We'll get there. <laughs> and actually the answer can be like, God knows, right? Yes, somehow, this is a, but it. But just what is important to say is that he had one form and he took on another form. He has both forms simultaneously. He did not let go of his deity to become he took them both. Okay. And he added to himself humanity. And it Explained by the next thing, he was born in the likeness of man. Now saying that he was born in the likeness of man, it's not like, well, he's like man, but not really like man. You kind of looked like him, but not really one of us. That's not what he's saying. It's heightening the idea. Christ. Christ shared in our humanity in every way. What does it mean to be human? He shared it. Except for one thing. And the Bible always makes this exception. Without sin. There is an effect of sin on you, your whole person, your humanity. Your sin affects it. So Christ would like us in every way save that one detail. Which is not kind of a big detail. But that one detail. So for example. A parallel statement would be Romans 8:3, that the Son came in the likeness of human flesh, but he condemned sin in the flesh. He became like sinful flesh, but he didn't have it so that he could condemn sin in the flesh, because the whole point of his coming is that he would be the perfect sacrifice. And that he, when, he, when he died, it would not be because of his sin that he died, it was for other sin that he would die. So he's like us in all that. So did he have flesh? Yes. Our humanity? Yes. no sin and uncorrupted. So he was took on the form of a servant he was born in the likeness of men and he was found in human form. Okay. Now this being found in human form this is a statement of eyewitness. That all those who were with Christ who saw Christ who ate with him hugged him cried with him were exhausted with him, who heard him sneeze and cough. And even those who hated him and killed him, who watched him writhe when he was whipped, who watched skin break and blood flow when they drove nails into his hands and feet, and who stabbed him with a spear to check to see if he were dead, all those people did not at ever, at a single moment, ever suspect that Jesus was not a man. Like, wait a second. What's going on here? And th- he was a man. They had no question. They had no reason to question that. And then on Christ's part, like if he, if he weren't man, yet he's acting like a man, saying that he was the son of man, behaving in this way, it would have been the greatest deception if he were to let them keep believing that he was a man when he was not indeed a man. And then in verse 7, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, here's a final statement of humanity Death. He died. God cannot die. By definition, God is eternal. He is the source of life. I have life myself. No one can take that. He is also immutable. He never changes. He never, like, one day is just like, oh, I guess I could die. He's always and forever will be God as he is. God cannot die. Therefore, if Christ were to die, it would have to be... If Christ were to die for mankind, he would have to become a living, breathing man so he might give his life as a sacrifice as man. So, This passage is unapologetic with the idea that here is Jesus in the form of God and in the form of a servant, but the form of a servant is the likeness of man, with like this full, robust picture of what it means to be in the form of a man. What we see is that Christ always existed in the form of God. In Trinity past, he's fully God. And yet when he's born, he took on the nature of man. He's fully man. Now, keep these thoughts in mind. Okay, let's turn to one more passage. Hebrews chapter 10. It's a surprising Advent passage. Didn't see it coming. Someone pointed it out to me. I'm like, oh, look at that. Look at that. Okay. So the argument, to give you a little context, the argument that the author of Hebrews is making is why Christ is better than the entire Old Testament system of redemption. The, the, The Old Testament system of redemption was pointing to Christ. There were sacrifices, because there's going to be the true sacrifice. There was priests, because there was going to be the true priests. Um, that'll suffice for this passage. So now, verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that were continually offered year after year, make, those, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, Um, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there was a reminder of sin every single year, for it is impossible by the bloods of bulls and goats to take away sins. Old Testament system. Now, here we go. The Advent, Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said... Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, now this is, that was quotes, now the author of Hebrews explaining, verse 8, when he said, You have neither desired nor take pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these were offered according to law, he then added, "Behold, I have come to do your will." He does away with the first order to establish the second, and that, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So he's he's working on his argument, and then he makes this like t- phrase, like so. There's this moment, this time, when Christ came into the world, he said. What? When he came into the world, he said? So first of all, there's like this little conversation. We got a glimpse into a conversation that God had with himself right before he comes into this world. Through the prophetic psalm that was quoted. It's like, here's Christ, as it were, standing on the precipice of heaven. He's about to go down, and he looks and sa- he says, a body you have prepared for me. Here it is. My second as it were, borrowed from Philippians, my second nature. Here's Christ pre-existing, talking, existing, a body you have prepared for me. So that Christ is simultaneously fully God and fully man. the Bible admits it, says it. Adding to the fun and the glory of it, Christ as man on earth, Christ as God, fully God and fully man in heaven. Like, there were glimpses, just moments in his earthly ministry of his glory. Transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration, when glory shone from him, it's like his deity was bursting through. There were moments that his deity would kind of peek through, as it were. How does it work? How can he function both as fully God and fully man? Like I said, how do you have omniscience yet limit yourself to only knowing what you would know as a man? And the answer is, we really don't know how the mechanics work. Only God does. So why scripture shows us that is true, it does not give us any real sense of how it works. We only know that God knows. But in general, when Christ came in our place to be our substitute, our sacrifice, our, our second Adam, representative. In general, Jesus Christ functions as a man. That's why you see him having very mannish qualities. Jesus Christ was a man empowered by the Spirit. That's what Peter says. Peter, who argues that Jesus is God, Jesus is man, he tells Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus, as a man, in submission to God, obedient to God the way we should have been, but we're not, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But again, the deity kind of pokes through at times. Transfiguration, some of the miracles, people look at him and say, who are you? And they worship him. Only God accepts worship. And then in Revelation, Hmm. I don't think I even, like, this this is always, like, these these are questions that kind of baffle me at times. I still, like, ponder them. I wonder how this this is amazing. I don't see how this works all the way. But Christ, like, living as a man on earth, his deity was there. But then, like, in heaven, in Revelation, he's got very godish qualities again. He's walking above the lampstands. He's, he's huge. He's glorious. He sits on a throne. He comes as a lamb who is slain. He looks and the line of J- Like all these qualities that describe him. And you say that this is very interesting. That somehow like his deity is shining through. And his humanity is shining through simultaneously. Guess what? Wait till heaven. Wait till heaven. And into eternity I think we'll get to enjoy this. Savor it and ponder it. Now, closing with the hope of the Incarnation, why this is our hope. In both these passages that we looked at, we looked at um, Philippians 2, Hebrews 10, and then other passages. We see that the reason why Christ came into this world is to die. He humbled himself to die, Philippians 2. He came as an offering, Hebrews 10, to die. This tells us of the love of the Father. The Father, first of all. Because the Father sent his Son to do this. I was thinking, God owns the world. Now, if, big if, okay, so not true if. if the way to deal with sin, was God offering a thousand bulls, ten thousand bulls, okay, come on. a million bulls for our sins? How much did that cost God? He created a thousand bulls, no problem. Or how about just another person, like just another, okay, not incarnate man, just another man? Like how much did that cost God? I mean, on a scale of infinite. but what he did instead was he sent his own beloved son who had in fact infinite value to him the suffering and death of a son being crushed by the way of God's wrath against our sin was costly infinitely costly so demonstrates our love John 3:16 God so loved the world that he gave his So that Jesus came into this world, tells us of the love of the Father, and tells us the compassion of our Savior, who willingly let go of his due privilege in order to enter our human plight, knowing full well the cost. He knew what was going to happen. A body you have prepared for me. I delight to do your will. And he looked out for our needs before his own. As, as we try to make sense of evil and suffering in this world and in our lives, sometimes you turn and ask God, why? What are you going to do about it? And the incarnation shows us that God is in the process of fixing the world from the inside out. God did not remain immune from pain and suffering. He entered into it. And by dying, he defeated death. And I'd even argue that Christ took the worst of it. There's no suffering like the suffering of Christ. There's no shame as degrading is bearing our sin on the cross. There's no injustice as great as his horrific painful murder at the hands of sinful men. There's no rejection as gut-wrenching as being forsaken by the Father on the cross. Not to turn to pleasant topics, but think of hell. Hell is eternal. Why is it eternal? Because the wrath that you, the offense of your sin against a holy infinite righteous God is infinite. And how can you as a finite human being experience infinite wrath? Answer, you cannot. You experience it for all eternity. There's something about Christ That makes him infinitely valuable, infinitely worthy. He could take infinite wrath on the cross. So, he could take the punishment of seven billion people and drink the cup of wrath to the last drop and say, It is finished. He could. So from suffering to suffering and tragedy to tragedy, we may not always know what the answer, like why this and why that, why did you let this happen and that happen. We may not get the answers completely, but we know what the answer is not. We cannot say that God doesn't love us, that God is detached that God doesn't care. God takes our suffering and our misery so seriously he is willing to take it on himself. John Wesley, pastor, evangelist, the first great awakening, lived in the 1700s, a very good man. God used him mightily. On his deathbed, with his family gathered around him, with what little strength he still possessed, his, his daughter reported, the last thing he told them. The best of all is, God is with us. The best of all is, you marry me well. So let's share a
1: What's up? Soul in her comparison pain to
0: from the Lord uh, delivered to you that on the Lord Jesus Christ on the night who was betrayed with bread and he had given thanks broke it said this is my body which is for you do this remember this in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it Bread, this cup, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When he comes, every knee will bow, in heaven and earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father, the one who humbles himself the most. Lord, we are so profoundly grateful for your Son who came and died for our sins. We don't think or sin as grievously as we should. The sacrifice of Christ proves it. Sometimes we doubt your love. That you sent your only begotten Son to die for us proves your great love for us. Lord, we are selfish. We care about ourselves and take our own needs first. Lord, but make us like our Savior, our glorious Savior, who put the needs of others before himself. Lord, mm-hmm. may we be a sacrificing people, a loving people. Lord, as we are in Christendom, Good news that you came you're coming again. Lord, give us joy as we go through this season. Give us peace. Let us experience your love. Lord, but for those who do not know our glorious Savior, do not know the great love of the Father, who do not know you as Lord and Savior, who just do not care, Lord, you care about them. That's why your Son came. So I pray that we would care about Lord, I pray that we would speak the gospel of peace, the good news as for all people. Make us passionate ambassadors that know to experience the truth that best of all is God with us and spread that
1: to the whole world. Thank you.